Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And, and while you're turning there, I want you to imagine that during World War II, you were in a concentration camp, suffering the horrors of what that would have meant, but that then towards the end of the war, you were liberated by some of the Allied soldiers. Just, just imagine this is what you'd experienced. And then imagine that a few years later, you wanted to gather some of the prisoners who'd been there and some of the soldiers just to celebrate and say thank you. And you're thinking, what could I do to, to magnify the, the worth of what they did in setting us free? What could I do to highlight the, the incredible gift they gave us in freeing us from this concentration camp? And you'd come up with the idea, what if we all spent time, first of all, all those who, have, who, are, who are prisoners, let's remember what we'd experienced in that camp. And so you might say to each other, remember the chains, remember the starvation, remember the beatings, remember the suffering, and remembering the condition you had been in would then highlight, you'd say, thank you, thank you, thank you to those soldiers who'd set you free, right? Remembering the past suffering and pain would highlight the freedom those soldiers had brought you. And the reason I mention that is because that's what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And we're going to do verses 1 through 3, 4 and 5 briefly, and then do 4 through 10 next week. But before we get to chapter 2, let's give the overview of what's Paul's flow of thought been. So in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul introduces himself. Then in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, Paul says to those who are trusting Christ, God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he mentions seven of them. You can read those passages, powerful verses. Every spiritual blessing. And then in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, Paul says, Therefore, because God's given you every spiritual blessing, I'm going to pray that you know God even more deeply, even more intimately, even more feelingly, that you know God more in three specific ways. One, that we would know the hope of His calling, the certainty of heaven. Two, that we would know the riches of His glorious inheritance, which is in the saints. That's the, the glory of heaven. And then three, that you'd know the immeasurable power which he brought about in Christ, raising him from the dead, seating him at his right hand, and then how he's given Christ to us, who's the fullness of all, and as Christ fills us with his love, then we have his power, specifically, over sin's temptations. So three things, the hope of his calling, the glory of the inheritance, and Christ's power filling us, conquering sin. Paul prays that we would know Christ more deeply and intimately. And that brings us then to chapter 2, where Paul says, I want to tell you now how God did this for you. How could God bless you with these spiritual blessings? How can God give you heaven? How can God give you his sin-breaking power? How does God do this for you? Let's take a look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where Paul reminds us of the concentration camp of sin that we all were in. Verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So in verse 1, Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. What does that mean? In what way were we dead? And it's not that we were physically dead. That's obvious just because we've experienced we're all physically alive. But notice in verse 3, Paul says we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So he's not talking about physical death. And, And yet there is a very real way in which before you were saved, before you were born again, there's a very real way in which you were dead. Dead emotionally, dead spiritually. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. We'll put it up on the screen. Here's the clue that helped me understand what this death involves. Ephesians 4, 18. Paul's talking about those who are not yet trusting Christ. So what he says here is true of us before we were trusting Christ, Right? He says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So underline that phrase in your Bibles, alienated from the life of God. Before God saved us, you were alienated, cut off from the life of God. God created you to have life in Him, emotional life in Him, spiritual life in Him, God created you for this life. In other words, God is so real. He's so good. He's so glorious, so loving, that knowing Him fills you with life, emotional, spiritual life. And so when Paul says we were dead... He says, we were cut off from that life. We didn't experience the life we were created for. Our emotional, spiritual life was just blah compared to the vibrancy, the joy, the peace, the love that we could have known. We were dead because of our trespasses and sins, cut off from the life of God. I try to think of a way to illustrate it. Think about your favorite vacation beach resort. Okay, got that pictured in your mind? So think about the, the life that you would experience if you were on this vacation. So you're thinking about snorkeling. You're thinking maybe it's scuba diving for you. You're thinking about parasailing. You're thinking about fantastic food, lounging by the pool, or maybe surfing at the beach if there's, if there's surf there. So you're just thinking about all the life that you'd experience on this vacation. So you, you head there, but then you are, if you all of a sudden were locked up in this little laundry room there and fed just, bread and water for the whole week that you were there. Think about how painful that would be. Tantalizingly close is the life of this vacation, but you're cut off from it. You're not experiencing it. You're dead to it. Now, the life of knowing God is infinitely greater than your wildest, most favorite beach resort vacation. But in the same way we were separated from the life of God, cut off from the life of God, not experiencing the emotional and spiritual life that he meant for us to have. We were, in other words, dead emotionally and spiritually compared to what we could have had. 
See, because in, in God, there's heart-filling joy. But we didn't experience that. In God, there's incomparable beauty that just captures our souls. We were cut off from that. In God, there's overflowing love. We never tasted of that before we were saved. In God, there's heart-comforting peace. We knew none of that. So we were dead. That's where it starts. Now, why were we dead? Why were we cut off from this life of God? Okay, we're talking about the concentration camp of sin that we were in. We were dead, cut off from God's life, but why? Paul tells us in verses 1 through 3, and as I studied these verses, I saw five reasons for why we were dead, why we were cut off from God. And the first reason is in verse 1. It's that we sinned willfully. It's because of our sin, our willful sin, that we were separated, cut off from God's life. Look at verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. So we were cut off from God's life because of our sin. Now, those two words, trespasses and sins, they make it crystal clear that we sinned willfully. The reason we sinned was not because of our circumstances. It's not because you had a bad day. It's not because the devil made you do it. None of those are the reasons why we sinned. We sinned because we willed to sin. We wanted to sin. We chose to sin. Here's what New Testament scholar Harold Honer said about these words, trespasses and sins. He said, these words describe, quote, a conscious and deliberate false step. They connote, they imply more than an inadvertent mistake. It's not just that we made a mistake, like, oops, no, no, no. They express a conscious and willful action against God's holiness and righteousness. So the reason we were cut off from the life of God is because we sinned willfully. God is holy and righteous, and God cannot and will not share His life with those who are unholy and those who are unrighteous, as we all were. Try to think of an illustration. So picture, I don't have horseshoe magnets with me, but picture horse, like, you know, two horseshoe magnets, okay? Now, if, if one's turned the wrong way, then the other one will repel it, right? It, it won't, they, they won't connect because it's turned the wrong way. In the same way, because of our sin, we were turned the wrong way. And we were unholy and unrighteous, which means that God's holiness and righteousness is repelled. We are repelled. He's repelled by our, our sin because we were sinning willfully. So that's the first reason. Again, we're looking at the, this concentration camp that we were under before God saved us. We were cut off from God's life. We were dead because we were sinning willfully. Second reason. This might be surprising to some of you, but we sinned continuously, non-stop, Where's that? Well, look at, read verses 1 and 2 together. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Now think about that word walked. 
if you were to say that somebody, well, this person, they just walk in kindness, what would that mean? I mean, they're always kind, right? They, they walk in honesty. They're just, they're just always honest. That's what that word, you say somebody walks in something. So when Paul says that we walked following the course of this world, he's saying that we are constantly, we are continually following the course of this world. And what is the course of this world? Ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, the course of this world has been independence from God, turning our backs on God, rebelling against God, wanting our own way, sinning against God. The whole world is moving that way, and we walked in the course of this world, right? We're following along in the course of this world, which means we are always sinning. Now, that might raise a question, though. You may have never thought about, I sinned continuously? I mean, didn't I ever do anything kind? Not even once? And just to relieve you, you did. Okay, we all did. Um, but remember, Jesus said the greatest commandment was, was what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, which means everything we do should be done for the glory of God, out of love for God, with a desire to please God. Everything we do, right? If we're loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I thought back times I was kind before I was saved. See if you're like me. I bet you you were. When I was kind before I was saved, I wasn't doing it because I loved God. I wasn't doing it, I hope God gets glorified through this. I hope God's pleased with this. God had nothing to do with my kindness. Those times when I was kind to other people, it was so that I wouldn't feel bad, so I wouldn't feel guilty, so I'd feel better about myself. I was really kind to someone today, you know, right? Uh, so that maybe other people would notice that I was kind, right? That's what motivated our kindness before we were saved, which means that even our kindness disobeyed the great commandment. And if you look back on your life, yes, there were some outwardly good things that we all did, but none of it was motivated by love for God, desire to glorify God, desire to please God. It was all kinds of other reasons which had nothing to do with God. That's how we sinned continuously. So we sinned willfully and we sinned continuously. Third, we sinned by following Satan. Verse 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who's the prince of the power of the air? Satan. Probably the reason Paul uses that phrase is that the air, the atmosphere, this is, that's the realm that demons are working in, okay? So it's another name for Satan. And, and Paul says we all followed the prince of the power of the air. Before you were saved, you were following Satan. I was following Satan. Now, that does not mean that we were all devil worshipers and practitioners of black magic, 
Understand, Satan is far smarter than that. He doesn't care if you don't even think about him. As long as he can make you not think about Jesus Christ. Right? He doesn't mind being totally in the background. As long as you're not trusting and loving and worshiping Jesus. See, there's thousands of other ways to follow Satan besides black magic and Satan worship, as horrifying as those are. Satan is fine with you working hard at your job and being faithful to your spouse as long as you don't think about Jesus Christ, as long as you don't take Christ seriously. He doesn't even mind if you go to church as long as you just go through the motions and don't earnestly seek God's face. Don't confess your sins. Don't put your trust in Jesus. Just, just go through the motions, leave. He's, he's totally fine with that. So see, we were all following Satan. Not that we were explicitly worshiping him, practicing black magic, but because in all kinds of ways, even if he was in the background, he was calling us not to focus on Christ, not to love Jesus, not to trust Jesus, not to glorify God. We all did that. We sinned willfully. We sinned continuously. And we sinned by following Satan. Is this weighing on you? As I was praying about this last night and this morning, my sense was that I think we all need to see more clearly just how lost we were. And I feel like the Lord impressed upon me that some of us in particular, this is a morning where he, in his love for you, wants to show you your sinfulness in the past. Now, how's that loving, to show somebody their sinfulness? Well, for God, it is loving. Remember the, the woman who, Jesus was having lunch at a Pharisee's house, and a, a woman of ill repute, a woman who was known to be a sinner, came in and was weeping over Jesus, drying his feet with her hair. The Pharisee was all offended. Remember that whole story? Luke chapter 7. And Jesus says to the Pharisee at the end, he says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. We know that because she loves much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. In other words, the more you see your sin, the more I see my sin, the more you will love Jesus Christ. And the greatest joy you can have ever is loving Jesus more. And I feel like there's some here in particular where this morning, as a gift to you, the Lord wants to maybe show you more clearly than ever before just how sinful you were. Not so you stay there, but so you love Jesus much. So that's where we're going. So we've got two more to go. Are you ready? Just wanted to take a little break there. Okay, ready? Two more. And then we're going to be liberated. All right, but first two more. Fourth. We sin in our desires. Uh, it's easier for people to think that sin is just outer actions that every once in a while we do. That, you know, we're really good on the inside, but every once in a while we do something bad, but really deep down inside we're good people. That's not what the Bible teaches. Sin is not just outer actions like lying or stealing or committing adultery. It's in our hearts. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, that's desires, that's what's happening in your heart, carrying out the desires, there it is again, of the body and the mind. So we did not just sin in our actions, we sinned in our hearts, in our desires. Remember, Jesus described the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs, and it was not a compliment. 
Remember? What he said about them was, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look all pretty and presentable on the outside. All your outer actions, just everything. But inside, in your hearts, you're full of rotting flesh. And that's what was true of us. We may have looked really moral and upright on the outside. But inside, there was greed, there was pride, there was jealousy, there was lust. Because sin is a matter of the hearts. So, even if your outside looks good, there still is was sin going on willfully and continuously in our hearts before we were saved. So before you were saved, if, if you acted kind towards someone, but in your heart you disdained them, you were sinning, right? If you acted patient towards people at your workplace, but inside you were angry and bitter towards them, that was sin. If you never have committed adultery, but in your mind you fantasize committing adultery, that's sin. You see that? Hard. So we, we all can look pretty good on the outside. Before I was saved, everybody would have thought I was a good kid. I was a whitewashed tomb full of rotting flesh. And so were you. That's the fourth one. Fifth, one last. We sinned by nature. We sinned willfully. We sinned continually. We sinned following Satan. We sinned in our desires. And fifth, we sinned by nature. Read verse 3 again. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were by nature children of wrath. To be a child of wrath means that, that you faced God's wrath because of your sin. You faced God's wrath. Now, the Bible is full of descriptions of God's love, beautiful descriptions of God's love. God overflows with love. He's abounding in love. He's slow to wrath. He loves, he delights in doing good. God is full of love. The Bible's full of those descriptions. But the Bible also has many descriptions of God's wrath. And understand whose wrath we're talking about here. We're not talking about the wrath of some political leader, some military leader. We're talking about the wrath of all-powerful God who has white-hot wrath against sin. And it's completely righteous. His wrath is completely just and pure and holy because His glory is the highest value of the universe. He's passionate to honor His glory because it is the highest value of the universe. And every time we sin, we are dishonoring the highest value of the universe. And it's right for him to have white, hot, just, holy wrath against our sin. Do you realize that you are a child of wrath, facing God's wrath? But notice those words, by nature. This is even more devastating as I think about it. What that means is that sin was part of your nature. Sin came naturally to you. Sin is what you wanted to do. It was all we wanted 
to do. It was our nature. And so see, the reason we sinned was not because of our circumstances. It wasn't because lack of communication. It wasn't because of lack of education. We sinned because it was in our natures to sin. By nature, we were children of wrath. Think about young children. If you're not persuaded of this, just think about this. How many of you parents needed to sit down and teach little Johnny, here's how you lie? It's going to sound very strange to you, Johnny, okay? But anybody need to teach their children how to lie? I, I'm not seeing any hands. How about sometimes you want to say mine and grab it. How many needed to teach their children about how to say mine and grab something? No. Where did that come from? Their nature? Our children, just like us, we are sinners by nature and by choice. It, it's who we, we are. Now, this raises another question, okay? If my nature is to sin, if this is what I was doing willfully and constantly and following Satan and in my desires and, and by nature I'm a child of wrath, if this is my nature, this is what I do by nature, well, then what about the concept of free will? And the Bible does say we have free will as long as we understand what the Bible means by that. Free will in the Bible means that you're free to do whatever you want to do. So if you want to go to Outback for lunch today, you can go. If you'd rather go to what? Shake Shack? Okay, you can go. If you're more of that side kind of food. So free will means you're free to do whatever you want to do. But do you see the problem here? If by nature we are sinners, if all we want to do is sin, then that's all we're free to do. You're completely free to do what you want to do, but that means that left to ourselves, all we will ever do is sin. Let that phrase just rest in your heart. By nature, by nature, we were children of wrath. That was your nature. Can you see how lost we were? Can you feel how desperately we needed to be saved? Can you feel how hopeless from our own resources it was in terms of any change happening? So we're asking, why were we dead? Why were we cut off from God's life? And it's because we sinned. We sinned constantly. Willfully is the first one. Willfully, constantly following Satan in our desires by our nature. We were enslaved in sin. That's all we wanted. We were cut off from the life of God. And Paul wants us to understand by these three verses that if God left us to ourselves, if he just lets you go your own way, we would never be saved. None of us would have ever been saved. All we ever would have done was sin. If God left us to our free wills, our free wills would just keep on sinning all the way to his wrath. That's what would have, would have happened. How many of you have heard of lemmings? Anybody heard of lemmings? Okay. Uh, lemmings are little rodents that live in Finland, Norway, Arctic region. And it's, it's, it's an urban myth that lemmings all decide to commit suicide together. You maybe have heard that they all go... They don't do that. But what they do 
is as part of their nature, they have an instinct to all migrate together in the same direction. And if what's in front of them is a cliff, then they will migrate their way right over that cliff to their destruction. That does happen. We all were like lemmings. By nature, we were all running away from God. No thank you. I want to live my life on my own. I don't care about who you are. I know you created me. I don't give a hoot. I want my own life. Thank you. I'm going to run ahead. All of us are running ahead. We're all moving ahead towards the cliff of God's wrath. And if God just sat back and let us do what was in our nature, let us do according to what we freely willed, we all would have gone over the cliff of God's wrath. None of us would have been saved. That's what Paul wants us to understand. So can you feel the horror of the concentration camp of sin that we were in? Can you feel the weight of that? I wish I could do this more justice. I'm just praying, God, bring your power. Let my weak words be accompanied by your power that we would just say, oh, I was lost. I was lost. So there we all are. We're running towards the, the cliff, shaking our fists at God, turning our backs against Him, rebelling against Him. So what do we deserve at that point? Wrath? What are, what are we worthy of at that point? Judgment? By nature, children of wrath. But the story doesn't end with verse 3. Verse 4 is like the sun rising after a dark night. Verse 4 is like the paramedics arriving at the front door just in time, right? Verse 4 is like the fire truck pulling up and you can get to go down the ladder to your escape. Here's verse 4. God saved us, and what did God do to save us? Verse 4, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. This is just shocking. We were children of wrath. God had every reason to have white, hot, holy, just, righteous wrath against me and against you. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. We deserved wrath. The only way God could do anything good for us was if it was mercy, because mercy means doing something amazingly good for completely undeserving people. That's us. By nature, children of wrath, completely undeserving. God had mercy upon us. God loves to do astonishing good for people who are completely, absolutely unworthy and undeserving. That's verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy. So if you're trusting Jesus right now, it's because God looked upon you in mercy. He looked upon you in love, and He did for you what you don't deserve. He did for you what you were not worthy of. He saved you. And what did he do to save you? Look at verse 5. Read, read verses 4 and 5 together. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead, there it is again, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You were dead in sin. Dead. Dead to God. Dead to faith. Dead to Jesus. Dead in sin. And God made you alive. Now, how did he do that? We'll see more next week. But God sent Jesus. While you were running from him, lemming-like, while you were shaking your fist in God's face, God sent Jesus, and Jesus died on the cross to pay for sin. If you're trusting Jesus right now, this is what God did for you. He sent Jesus who paid for all of your sin on the cross. All the punishment you deserve, just like Luke shared with us from Isaiah 53, it was put upon Jesus. Jesus was punished in our place. And so because Jesus was punished for all of your sin, because the wrath, end of verse 3, was poured out upon Jesus, at some point in your life, then God brought his power upon you, and he made you alive. Picture Lazarus in the tomb, dead, right? Corpse. Jesus is outside the tomb. What does Jesus say? Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? Life infused his body. Life, vitality came back to his body, and he got up and he walked out of the tomb. So what did Lazarus do to get alive? He was dead. God spoke, and Lazarus revived. Remember the song the old hymn, Long My Imprisoned Spirit Lay. Anybody remember that song? Okay, I'll keep going. Long My Imprisoned Spirit Lay, Fast Bound in Sin and Nature's Might. Or is it night? One of those two, okay. Long My Imprisoned Spirit Lay, Fast Bound, Bound Up in Sin and Nature's Night. Thine eye, God's eye, diffused a quickening ray. Boom, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart, it's free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what happened to Lazarus in the tomb. That's what happened to you when God saved you. He made you alive. He birthed a new nature in you. You had a nature that sinned constantly and willfully. Even if you looked good on the outside, the inside was filthy, rotting flesh. God birthed a new nature in you. He mortally wounded the old nature that's being progressively put to death now. He birthed a brand new nature in you, and for the first time, you see Jesus. You loved Jesus. You wanted Jesus more than anything. If I could know you, if I could fellowship with you, any cost is worth it. Where did that come from? This new nature, blood-bought nature that God at great cost to himself sent Jesus. Jesus at great cost to himself died on the cross, purchased you a new heart, purchased you faith, purchased you repentance, implanted these in you. You trusted Christ. The moment you trusted Christ, all your sins were forgiven. You received the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the life I was meant for. There's love. There's joy. There's peace. God is real. For the first time, life. Your dead heart starts beating. You've been made alive. That's verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. We've seen the concentration camp of sin. We've seen God's 
mercy and great love for us in making us alive. We're going to unpack this more next week, but let me wrap up by asking this one last question. What does this mean for us? Let me give you a couple of takeaways I think will be helpful. One, understand that salvation is a supernatural change brought about in you by God. Salvation is not just a decision you make. It does involve a decision to trust Christ, to repent of your sins. It does involve decision, but it, it starts with a supernatural work that God does in your life. And I want to stress this because it may be that all you've experienced is just making a decision in your mind. And you may think, what's this about loving Jesus more than anything? Uh, that's not going on. What's this about the life of knowing God? I don't, I don't have much life in knowing God. Well, I want, I want to impress upon you that salvation in the New Testament is a supernatural work that God accomplishes in every one of his saints, every one of the elect. God supernaturally saves them. And that's beautiful to me. It's not just you flicking a decision in your mind. It's God making you alive. It's a, it's a dead person coming to life. It's Lazarus come forth out of that tomb of sin. It's a new nature being put in us. It's a supernatural change that God brings about. So that may raise a question. Secondly, I'm not sure that that's happened. What should I do if I'm not sure that that's happened in me? I've got great news. If you want that to happen to you, maybe it already has and you just don't remember it. Or maybe it just happened for a little bit and you, you haven't been told you need to press in for more. But here's my encouragement. If you're not sure this has happened, look to Jesus and trust him until you know you've been made alive. And I promise you, based on the authority of God's word, as you look to Jesus, as you open up the scriptures, see who he is, see the beauty of his death on the cross, the mercy of his payment for your sin, the power of his resurrection, his love for you, his care for you, as you see Jesus, God's glory displayed in Jesus, as you look to Jesus and trust him and say, pour out more of your life-giving work upon me, pour it out so that I know he will totally do that. He loves you, he's faithful, he's promised Where's he promised that? John 7. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. From his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You think you're going to know if rivers of living water are flowing from you? You will know. And it's a promise. John 6. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. When you come to Jesus, there's a supernatural change that you'll experience. He'll do it. He loves you. He's merciful. Great love for us. Third, what if you're not yet trusting Jesus? You're hearing this. I hope you're interested. Uh, this is life. This is joy. This is love. This is peace. This is what you were created for. And you, you're, you're dead to it all because of your sin. I was too. So what should you do? Here's my encouragement. Look at Jesus' love and mercy and trust him. Look at his love. Look at his mercy. Look at his death on the cross. 
Look at the Father's love in sending Jesus to die to pay for sin. Look at Jesus. Trust him. Trust him. Fourth, if you are trusting Jesus, then let verses 1 through 3 humble you and let verses 4 and 5 magnify Christ. We all fight pride here. Pride's so prevalent. I find one of the most powerful ways to, to fight pride is to reflect on verses like verses 1 through 3. Because what these verses mean, I mean, if, if you were to ask me, um, Steve, why are you saved? I'd say, well, because I trusted Jesus. That would be the right answer. But then if you ask me, why did you trust Jesus? The right answer is, because God in his mercy made me alive. By nature, I wasn't going to trust Jesus, but he made me alive. He implanted a new nature. And see, what this does against my pride is it reminds me that anything good in me is only a blood-bought gift purchased on the cross and given to me. Left to myself wouldn't be pretty. None of you would want to know me. Left to myself. And the same is true for you. Anything good in us is a blood-bought gift from Christ. Left to ourself, all we do is sin. So let this just humble you. I was just thinking this morning, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive as a gracious gift from God? That's my paraphrase. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? There's nothing good in us that we should boast in because it's all bought at the suffering of Christ on the cross. Let that humble you, and then let this glorify Christ. We were all lemming-like heading to the cliff of God's wrath. God's wrath was righteous and holy and just and pure. And yet at great cost to himself, he said, Son, would you go and suffer? Broke the Father's heart. And at great cost to Jesus, he said, I will go. He set his face towards Jerusalem. At great cost to the Father and to the Son, by the work of the Holy Spirit, our salvation was purchased. And so all the glory goes to the Father. All the glory goes to the Son. All the glory goes to Jesus. I mean, what a God. What kind of God would come and suffer and die for his rebellious creatures? What God does that? Our God does that. Jesus does that. The Father sent him, so all the glory goes to God. We are humbled in the dust, and then we're made alive and lifted in praising God. That's how it works. So let's stand. I want to pray this over us. Lord, I feel like some people this morning, especially this is a morning when you in your love for them, want them to see and feel the concentration camp of sin that they were in. That you want them to see and feel, maybe like never before, how sinful they were. And I pray that by the power of your Spirit right now, you would just pour that out upon us. That we would see. We know this goes against much of the, of the current of our culture, which wants us to... to have self-esteem and wants us to feel good about ourselves. And, and, and Lord, 
Help us to see our sinfulness. Help us to counter that and to own up to the truth of your word so that we can then be lifted into the humble joy of loving Christ more, worshiping you, our Savior, more, living for your glory and your honor more. So I pray, Lord, right now, come and convict us of our sinfulness so that we would love your salvation all the more. Lord, those here who are not yet trusting Christ, we love them. We're glad they're here. Thank you for bringing them. Lord, please right now, show them their sin. Show them your salvation through Christ. Show them the reality of this. And right now, Lord, bring them to faith, I pray. Oh, pour your love into their hearts. Make them alive. Do that right now, I ask by your power. And Lord, humble us before you and magnify your glory. We want Grace Church to be a humble church that is ablaze with love for Christ and glory to God. So put that on us, I pray. Let's worship the Lord.